Okay, so <clears throat> any perfectionists out there? Any perfectionists? Holy <laughs> cow, well, okay, obviously. That was only three? Seriously? She two. Okay, come on, admit to it. Admit to it. It's not all bad. Um, we were talking about this a little bit, and I'm, I don't know, I'm not a perfectionist. I'm kind of type A, but I've been forced into type A just by training. I don't think I was type A when I was younger. I know I was not type A when I was younger. But, you know, as a perfectionist in certain things, I recognize the burden that that brings. Nothing is quite right, always criticizing myself. But then on the flip side of that, sometimes perfectionism has a value to it as well. You know, it can be a motivator. I remember my first professional job. So I was in my late 20s, maybe mid-20s. I don't want to do the math on stage. I'll mess it up. And I want to be perfect about my math, yes. <clears throat> and, and my dad said, well, how's it going? And I was, you know, I was really into this job. I was pretty excited about it. And I actually said to him, well, okay, so I've been there for X number of weeks and I've made three mistakes. <laughs> and I remember the look on his face like, uh, <laughs> okay, you're counting your mistakes at work. It's like, oh, that's not going to go well. He didn't say anything, but I could see in his eyes. And <clears throat> just that expression on his face made me kind of sit back and start to think that through a little bit better. And boy, boy, was I setting myself up for a dep depressive swing. I mean, he didn't say anything, but the look in his eyes was good for me. Um, I'll, I'll get to that later on, working through with that. But um, today, we're kind of going to look at perfection. Um, Paul addresses it a bit in, in Philippians. If you know, and I'm sure everybody knows, we're going through the book of Philippians. Um, I don't remember what week we're on. Six or something. Who knows? Whatever. Uh, we're in chapter three, though. And uh, Paul kind of sets forward what I kind of recognize as kind of a twofold view of Philippians. Well, the first we're going to cover is like a theological view. And then we're going to take a look at maybe a philosophical view, or you could call it a psychological view of perfection. Just to step back and recap a little bit of where we were at last week. So we're going to, I'm going to really cover the text of the second half of chapter 3, but just really kind of need the whole recap of what chapter 3 is looking at. But the recap of Philippians, the book, is that Paul is writing to one of his, a church that's very close to his heart, Philippians was a, was a, a church that uh, there was a lot of success in. Um, he spent time there. He actually was put into prison there. He has a lot of friendships there. And now he is in house arrest in Rome when he's writing this letter. And the town of Philippi, the church of Philippi, sends to Rome uh, somebody to help take care of him. Uh, Epaphroditus goes to take care of Paul to, to assist him in, in Rome, and Epaphroditus actually gets really sick, near death, is what Paul tells us when he writes back. So he's kind of writing a letter back to Philippi saying, uh, you know, hey, this is where we're at. Hey, this is what's up. This is what's going on. And it seems from the letter that Philippi is doing pretty good. There's a lot of positives, a lot of encouragement there. But he also sticks in there a couple of warnings. Two of the warnings, we, Donnie covered one of the warnings last week. Um, which is Judaizing, which is that there's a Jewish push 
in the early church to say, hey, you have to become a Jew before you become a Christian. And so you have to take on yourself all these Jewish laws and all the Jewish rituals to be perfect to be able to become a Christian. And Donnie kind of covered that last week. And then in the end of this week, we'll see that there's also this, um, this other warning that Paul gives, which is a warning to, to, towards uh, more of a Gnostic thinking or a, the Roman pagan way of worship, indulging in things, basically. The Gnostic concept was you have to have some special knowledge Gnosis is knowledge. You have to have some special knowledge to get yourself to salvation. And then they do this thing where they separate the physical and the spiritual. And that knowledge is entirely spiritual. What happens physically doesn't matter. Now, in the pagan world, that becomes total physical indulging, right? The history of, of Roman paganism is, is you give to the gods and then you indulge. And part of that is a big celebration of... of, um, of of um, f- fertility and of well-being, and, and Paul's going to give us a warning about that later on as well. So last week, Donnie talked about how Paul is seeing his pharisaical perfectionism as a total loss. It's a total loss. All of this work and all that he did is loss, he says. As a matter of fact, the term used in the second verse there is all sewage. It's all sewage in the light of knowing Jesus. All these words, it's, it's, it's his most righteous acts. I mean, he was the Pharisee of Pharisees, right? And his most righteous acts are dirty rags. Kind of gets that idea from Isaiah, Isaiah 64, Isaiah actually writes, um, how can we be saved? We are all like one who is unclean. All all of our so-called righteous acts are like menstrual rags in your sight, Lord. We all wither like leaves. Our sins carry us away in the wind. And there, there's the foundation of this theological view of perfectionism. Right there is the foundation that Paul's going to be working from. And so we need to look back on last week a little bit. I'm just going to read verses 7 through 11 to get us in that mindset of where Paul left us off. So it should be up on the screen. Use you know, your, your electronic devices. I always read on my phone. But uh, verse 7, we'll start. Uh, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is just so beautiful. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. There's that pointer back to Isaiah, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There's this theological concept called imputed righteousness. Imputed means to be accounted for. 
I account for righteousness. How do I count for my righteousness? How do I count for my righteousness? I'm not righteous. I'm not doing right in, in the eyes of the Lord. Paul recognizes that in all of his righteousness, all of the righteousness that he ever did was garbage. It's meaningless. His righteousness is, he says it, found in Christ. So this idea of imputed, accounted for, is it's Christ's righteousness that accounts for me, for my righteousness. I'm accounting my righteousness in Christ because I'm in Christ. Jesus' righteousness is accounted for us. Those who know him, that is. But so there, there's more than that, right? So there's this imputed righteousness, but then that can kind of look like what? It can kind of look like putting lipstick on a pig, right? Like so, but I'm still wretched and make mistakes and, and, and there's still a lot of sewage, right? It needs to be clean. Oh, but I'm wearing Christ's righteousness. So it's, it's not like it's Jesus's glory painted over my refuse. So that's going to take us into verse 12. We're going to read 12 through 14 here. Not that I have already obtained this or that I am already perfect, says Paul, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, do not consider that I have made it my own. I didn't do it myself. didn't make this perfection. I'm not even perfect. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me and straining forward for what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. So Paul doesn't focus on his past and his past sins. He focuses on what's ahead of him, what's in front of him, what is he striving for. These past sins are baggage. I mean, he was, he was killing Christians, and, and now he is the pinnacle of Christian evangelism. If he, if he carried that baggage around, where would he be with that? He would be constantly dealing with the problem. So he says, no, I'm not going to carry that baggage around. All that's in the past. Repent, turn towards God, be forgiven. Be new in Christ and wear his righteousness. I find it interesting, a lot of conversations I have with people around sin, it is, sure, Christ has forgiven me, but boy, do I have a hard time forgiving myself. <clears throat> That's almost taking my own position, piling it on my back and saying, oh, no, Christ isn't big enough to forgive my sins. I really love the imagery from Pilgrim's Progress. Are you familiar with Pilgrim's Progress? We should be. Not a lot of people read it anymore. It's pretty hard old English. Um, but if you're not familiar with it, uh, John Bunyan I think the year was 1678 or something like that, so just post-Reformation. But he's a, he's a Catholic writer, and he's writing an allegory about a Christian journey. The actual character's name is Christian, and he uses characters, and he names them very appropriately exactly what they are. So Christian, the character, um, he, he, he finds a book of the Bible. He's reading about this glorious kingdom, and he goes on a journey to find this glorious kingdom. And he finds himself... Now, he's met up with somebody. He meets people along the way. He meets this person named Pliable, and they have to cross this slough. It's called the Slough Despond. And so they go into the Slough Despond. I think we got some pictures of it up here of some old, uh, I love old art. 
I couldn't find exactly the old art that was, came from the original documents, but just to give us some in imagery, there's Christian, he's got the Bible, and here's Pliable trying to climb out of the slough. They find, he, Christian finds out that this baggage that he's wearing, because he packed a bag before this journey, right? He's got this baggage on him that he can't get rid of, and it's, it's pulling him down, it's sinking him into the mud, and he's now stuck in it, and he can't get out of the slough, nearly drowning. Pliable actually gets angry at him. He gets angry at him and scoffs at Christian in the idea of this journey to happiness in this glorious kingdom. And actually says that he's going back to the other side and he intends to save his own life and Christian could go have this nonsense kingdom for himself. So Pliable takes off and disappears and, 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 and Christian is trying and struggling to get up the bank and then along comes another friend and that friend's name is Help. And Help reached down reaches down and helps him out of the slough. Christian comes along through some conversation and realizes that uh, he's kind of awakened, I think the book says, awakened about his condition. He's awakened about his condition of his fears and his doubts and the discouragement and his apprehension because of all of this is that is weighting him down. It was part of what causes his problem in the slough, his fear in fear of all this weight that he's carrying on his back. Well, the journey goes on, and uh, he runs into a wall called Salvation, and he follows that wall of Salvation up to this hill, and on top of the hill is the cross. And on the top of the hill, the cross, his baggage that he's carrying is suddenly released, snaps, and falls off of his back. This burden is lifted off of him. And then he starts singing this song. So this is out of, out of the book. Uh, Christian gave three leaps for joy and he went on singing. Do I have a picture of him at the cross? There he is at the cross and he sings this. Thus far I did come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in. Till I came hither, what a place is this, must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must hear the burden fall off of my back. Must hear the strings that bound me crack. Blessed is cross. Blessed is sepulcher. Blessed rather be the man that put on this shame for me. And then that's, he goes on that journey. There's much, much more. But uh, that is just an imagery that I got with that idea. Is that... That sin, that burden of sin has to be taken off of our back. It has to be taken off of our back. And then we wear the righteousness somewhere. And personally, I mean personally, I am more moved by that picture, <clears throat> by the picture of his sins being relieved from his back, than that concept of Jesus' righteousness being painted onto me. Not that one is, is, is more grand than the other, but personally, lifting that burden off of my back meant so much to me. It was really one of the keys for me to make progress as a Christian. And then righteousness can be attained. The concept here, theologically, is called a double imputation. Again, account for. How do I account for my sins? The imputation, then, is that my sins are imputed on Christ. It is him, it is the cross, that removes my sins. And then his righteousness is imputed onto me. It's the double imputation is this theological concept that comes out of, out of um, 
the Reformed thinking. God puts on our transgressions. He, he puts our, in Psalms 103, he puts our transgressions as far as the sun set is from the sun rise. I just so love that imagery. Can the sun set ever touch the sun rise? I mean, it was one horizon to the other horizon is one part. No, they're separate horizons. But then the concept of the sun rising on one side and then setting on, they can never happen at the same time. That's what God is doing with our, with our sins. He's taking it and setting it from the sunset to the sunrise as far apart as possible. He removes that guilt of our rebellion from our back. This imagery came to me when I was, when I was just finishing up this morning. I just threw this one piece in. But there's this imagery from fifth grade. Fifth grade, my teacher was really into reading books to us. And he read this book about mountaineers on K2. K2 is one of the biggest mountains in the world. It, it's one of the neighboring mountains to Everest. And as a matter of fact, they think a lot of people claim it's more technical and more difficult to climb than Everest because it's steeper and more difficult to ascend. In this book, if I remember right, I'm issue, this is fifth grade, so this is a memory from fifth grade, there's this scene where one of the mature leaders of the mountaineering group is standing on an ice cliff. Do we have that picture? <laughs> we put that picture up? Of, yeah. It's kind of like, this is one of the ridge lines of K2 upon the ascent. And you picture the scene where is on an, an ice cliff next to a rock, and there is not enough space for more than one person as they're moving along this ice cliff. And at that situation, you are not roped up because if somebody falls, they're going to pull everybody off with them that you cannot stop yourself. There is no arrest. And he looks back, and he sees that part of the ice cliff is crumbling away as one of his younger less experienced mountaineers is following behind him. And he looks back and he says, uh, quickly, reach to me with your ice axe. And he reaches to his ice axe and he grabs his ice axe and pulls the guy onto the ice cliff that he's on and he leaps off the cliff to his death to save this younger mountaineer. That's the picture that I get out of this. It's crumbling away beneath me. Christ says, come here. And he jumps. That's the imagery that I got. Saving my life. Sacrificing his. So, back to Pilgrim's Progress. Christian was burdened. He was bogged down in this journey. Almost drowning in the slough. How much baggage. I mean, think about our lives. How much baggage do we get burdened with? And it's not just our own sins. It's sins from other people. It's sins from the environment. Sins from our, our culture sometimes drag us down. Sins from history that, bank, that, that, that bog us down. And there's Christian at the cross, freed, freed from this. Freed from this. Um, our sins transferred to Jesus. In, in, in two senses, in, in a literal sense, it's transferred to Jesus in that he is tortured and beaten and died, but also in the spiritual sense. Jesus' perfection 
is transferred to us. But then, I gotta ask the question, then, then why? Why am I not perfect? Okay, I've transferred all my sins away, put his righteousness on, well, why, why am I not perfect then? Why am I still struggling with this? And Paul somewhat deals with this. And then here's, so here's the psychological or the philosophical part of, of perfectionism. I draw short of calling it practical uh, because it isn't really anything doing. It's not that I do anything. It's not practical. That's why I'm calling it psychological. It's more of, a, of an understanding or an acceptance of. So we're going to pick up Philippians 3, verse 12. I'm going to read 12 through 16 here. Uh, so we're rereading some of this, right? Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or that I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. How does that mean? What does that now that means so much more? Brothers, I do not consider my consider that I have been made it or that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me and straining forward to lies ahead, I press on towards the goal, the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything else, or if, if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal this thing also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So Paul says, not that I am perfect. And he, he does a play on words here, and this is kind of fun. He, play, he does a play on words here. I want to emphasize perfect and mature. So these words in Greek are super similar. The root is telos. And telos in Greek is an end goal or a fulfillment. <clears throat> it's actually the same root that we hear uh, uh, Jesus say when he's on the cross, when he says, it is finished. Um, I'm going to slaughter it right now. <laughs> telos to die. I blew it anyways. <laughs> Thank you. That's the root of that word. It is finished, Christ says. Well, Paul is playing with these two root words, perfection, telos, or telio, and maturity, telios. It's just different tenses to that. And the concept of it, you might, have, you might hear it in, in other realms. Teleology is a term that's used in, uh, in like, Biology, when you're, when you're studying um, something like uh, evolutionary biology, they'll say, oh, the teleology of this, the purpose to this. So what is, what is the purpose to, you know, something like, why is a platypus's fur luminescent? It's one of the great questions. Why? And they're doing all these studies to figure out why that is. What is the purpose to? That's teleology. What is the function of the appendix? There's a purpose or a meaning. There's, a, there's some reason it's here. So they're studying that. So there's the teleology of the appendix is whatever. One can extend it into philosophy and say, what is my purpose? What is the purpose of humanity? Is there a reason for my existence? We walk from teleology into existentialism. We start, we start looking into a much bigger, broader idea of, of this. So Paul is grabbing onto this word, big, big word. He's why I'm grabbing onto this idea of perfection and start asking these questions about, is this perfection more of a purpose? Something driven 
as opposed to what our Western thinking would be as a state of being. That's where we tend to want to get to, right? Our Western thing, perfection is a state of being. It is a state where everything is perfect. There is no error, and then you stop. That's the state. State is static, a fixed state. But Paul is almost using a language to say, well, it isn't a state. It's actually a purpose, a direction, a movement into more of a concept of purpose. Gregory of Nyssa was one of the early church uh, leaders. Um, he dates 335, 384, I think is the span of his life. He's, uh, he has two brothers that are bishops in the, in the area of Turkey. And um, they do a lot of letter writing to each other. I've um, been reading a bunch of them, and uh, he writes, he captures this idea, and he writes uh, a book uh, he, called The Life of Moses. It's really a powerful concept. He kind of captures onto this, and he starts capturing this idea. Now, the author or the editor of this book says this, that um, he starts capturing the idea that perfection itself is an un interrupted process, never attaining a fixed state. That's what he gathers out of Nissa's writing. And here's actually Nissa's writing here. He says, the soul rises away, extending itself forward through the desire of heavenly things, as the apostle says in Philippians 3.13, and its flight will lead it ever higher. Desirous as it is never renouncing the summit which is above it, and its view of which it has already reached. The soul is given a movement of never-ending ascension, and it finds always in its past achievements a new energy for soaring even higher. For spiritual activity alone has the propriety of nurturing its own strength while expending it and not to lose, but rather to increase it through exercise. Really deep idea here. This is, this, this, is, uh, this is really tricky for some people to get their heads wrapped around. Perfection not being a state, but being a perpetual motion towards God. The, uh, the author, C.S. Lewis, writes this idea in, uh, in the, um, the seventh book of the Chronicles of Narnia, the final battle. The, the Pevensey children finally are in heaven and they're running through heaven and they keep calling out, further up and farther in, they call. And here's what, here's what C.S. Lewis writes. All their lives in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover page, the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning. Chapter one of this great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Is that a beautiful image that he paints? We enter into heaven and it isn't like, oh, okay, Phew. sit back, done. When my children actually, this idea haunted them, which was like, what? 
and then I sit there forever and ever and ever? How boring. <laughs> no. It's a never-ending journey. This perfection, perhaps, is the act of engaging the process as opposed to a static state. So is anybody really, is anybody here really into philosophy or really curious about philosophy? A couple of us? Okay, I want to put a plug in. R.C. Sprawl has a wonderful series called The Consequences of Ideas. He covers this like within the first three lessons, being and becoming, a static state versus an always moving state. Mind-blowing. I suggest going there. If you're interested, I'll, give you a, I'll, I'll get you a link to start listening to him. Philippians 3.14. So anyways, so he puts this idea of Tilios on both sides of this concept of the call of God. He says 3.14, I press, I strive towards the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ, and then calls out us to be mature. And if we don't believe these things, we're not thinking about things. If you're striving, the Holy Spirit will reveal it to you. That's what he says in there. But he puts that on both sides of this call. I'm striving for this call. Paul's saying that the ultimate price, or prize, the ultimate prize is the call of God. It's to be in his presence. He calls us to be in his presence. That's the ultimate prize. 1 Corinthians 9.24, he gives this explanation of what is he doing all this for. You guys are all doing this for a crown. I do it for an imperishable crown. The crown will never, never, never perish. Eternally, standing in front of the Lord, striving, becoming that much closer and that much closer to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.9, he says, So whether we are alive or we are away, dead, we make it our ambition to please him. That becomes our motive. Our call to the Lord is our motive. Always, always striving that direction. In which every chapter is better than the one before. I love that. I love that idea from, 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 from Gregory. Perpetual, eternal ascension. Always growing, always maturing, always more wisdom to learn, forever and ever closer and more intimate with Christ. That means here on earth, as well as in resurrection. Okay, finally, let's look at the last part of this, some practical pieces to this. Philippians 3, 16 through 21. And I'll stop, and I'll chunk it up and kind of put some comments in between. Only let us hold true to what we have attained, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. So he puts together all this big idea and then he says, well, how do we do this? What's the practical? Hey, the practical piece is keep your eyes on me. I'm going to follow Christ. If, if you're not there, follow me. Well, I follow Christ. We need, we need to have role models that are following Christ. We need to have a set of accountability. We need to be careful to not backslide. We will backslide. That is human nature. That is the way it is. How do we, how do we avoid that? We're always striving towards the Lord. We need to help each other. We need to set eyes on people that we know are glorifying God. You have a relationship with Jesus. 
follow that person. You know there's somebody that's strong in the Lord? Follow that person. Hold true to what we know. What do we know? We know Christ. That's what he's saying in there. Know Christ. Don't squander that. So verse 18 says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, they walk, with, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So there's that second warning. The first one was Judaism. The second one is this concept of Roman pagan worship or Gnosticism. That, I mean, we're looking at the impossibility of perfection. Right, right at the front end, God, Paul says, look, there's a, it's impossible to be perfect. I'm not perfect. And then here at the tail end, he's looking at, well, this is what it looks like if we just abandon it. So there's one problem that runs into perfectionism. Those who are perfectionists maybe see this. Ah, I didn't do this perfectly. All right, forget it. I'm out. I'm out, right? Well, I ran into this over and over again in Bible reading. I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. Oh, dang, I'm behind. I'm out. Done. I don't want to catch up. Well, that way I don't have to sit there and judge myself and carry all this guilt on my back that I'm not caught up, right? That's a... Really common way. What does it look like? I'm striving towards this perfectionism. I didn't get there. I don't want to deal with the guilt. I'm out. That's what it looks like. My belly is my God. Now what am I worshiping? If I'm not in that eternal ascension of perfectionism, then what am I doing? Well, I'm going to serve myself. Okay, we don't have pagan gods much anymore in this culture, but we have individualism. Boy, do we make that a God. This fits perfectly, perfectly. My belly is my God. That glory turns into shame. So there's his warning for that. And then he goes on in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. I'm not a citizen of Rome. I'm a citizen of heaven. This is brilliant. Think of this of Paul. Paul's a citizen. He's a Roman citizen. He is a Pharisee, so he's a Jewish citizen. Uh, but he says, over all of this, oh, my citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. All things. If you reject Jesus, who do you worship? We worship. We worship. We idolize. We look towards something. If we're not going to idolize Jesus and worship him, what is replacing it? Paul tells us that he recognizes this and he's in tears. He's in tears about those who have rejected that and gone back to a pagan worship. We're not citizens in Rome. We're citizens of heaven. It all looks entirely different. Entirely. My citizenship is entirely different. First a citizen of heaven, second a citizen of the United States. The United States is so much lesser than heaven. Doesn't mean I don't serve and honor. I try to do my best, but Christ comes first. Our hope is not in our body for now. 
It's not in the immediate pleasure. Our hope is in a continuous sanctification, a glorification. Our bodies are now lowly, and someday will be glorified. That idea of sanctification is continually be made more holy. We're all in this, come to the Lord, we're in a process of being sanctified, of him changing our body to be more and more holy like his. Jesus has shown us this in his resurrection and by his awesome power. He's the one that holds all things together. He is part of, he created it. He holds it together. Without him, it disappears. It disappears. I want to end with Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Because I think there's a really great thing that he says in the end. He looks at the Philippi after all of this. Here's all this wonderful idea about being perfect, about perfection. And then um, there's some warnings. And he says, therefore, my brother, whom I love... And I long for my joy and crown. He's calling the Philippians his joy and his crown. Because it's going to be a relationship in heaven with all these people. That's the imperishable crown. He tells them, stand firm. Thus in the Lord, my beloved. There's the imperishable crown. Returning to my story about work, in my realization there of what I was starting to do, setting myself up for that state of perfection of which that I could never, ever make, and my tendency to fall into depression about these things, my dad's look alone just made me realize, be careful with that. Don't do that. And I've been over many, many, many years trying to find that balance of I want to do very well and serve. Eventually in my work world, I said, I serve the Lord and Lord first, and my perfection is a service to him, and he doesn't hold it over my head. To the point that if I was sitting in an interview, honestly, I've done this, and when we're talking about what are my motives at work, I tell them, I work, I work for him, not you. And you know what that means? I'm gonna do a good job, that's what that means. It means my, my motive is going to be greater than anything you could motivate me with. But it's not to carry that guilt. It took a long time for me to get there, but it just starts with that recognition of don't carry, don't carry that, don't carry that. Forgive yourself, because the Lord has forgiven you. It's a fool's errand to try to be perfect in a static state. Where my creator's glory. So am I perfect in all of that? No. But wait. Depends on what concept of perfect I mean. Am I perfect in that in that I am always striving and ascending closer and closer towards God? Yes. See how relieving that is? Am I perfect in that? No, failure, failure. Fa wait. No, I'm striving towards the Lord. I am perfect. I am perfect in that. doesn't mean I don't trip over things and hack my shins. Why am I perfect in that? Because as Paul said, I am in Christ. That's why I'm perfect in that. So you notice that we have communion today. What I'd like to do is just to do just transfer that right into communion. That idea of perfection and being in Christ and him 
taking our sins off of us through the spilling of his blood, the breaking of his body, and us, us being cleansed by that and us putting on his righteousness. There's just something so deep and beautiful about communion. Other churches and other traditions take communion to a very philosophical level that is just a beautiful level to, to me. The Protestant church has really kind of reduced that a little bit. I'm saddened by that, but I really want to bring some of that back into it. That idea that I, we just walked through the Gregory of Nyssa pre presented to us, let's think about that as far as the perfection. Part of this perfection is that I'm in Christ, and I want to remember what he did. Jesus says it when he's at the final supper. Remember this. Remember me. We need that. Remember that reminder of what Christ has done for us. And then let's take that into us. Let's take the concept of Jesus' body and his blood into us and say, I am in you, Christ, and you are in me. John 6, 56, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood resides in me and I in him in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, said Paul. So what I'd like to do is the worship team's going to come up. They're going to uh, play a worship song. I'm going to read through this phenomenal teaching, this, this amazing teaching. I'm going to kind of, I, I chunked up some of the prayers out of this teaching from uh, 100 to 150 AD. So there's this set of teachings that the early church started putting together. There's no particular author. It was just churches started to put this together to say, hey, how do we become consistent in what we do? In this, this I'm going to read specifically out of a communion concept, a Eucharist concept. And they wanted to get all on the same page. And churches would then add to it and change it a little bit and, and broaden it. And this was distributed to all the churches in the first century. This is the first century, 100 AD. What we are thinking is that the first sections of the, it's, it's called the Didache. The first sections of the Didache were people that were working with John, the apostle John, to write this stuff down. So this is old, old concepts of stuff. So as I read through this, and then, then, then the worship team's going to pray, then or going to play, then come and get the, uh, the elements and take them back to your seats, and then wait, and let's do this together in a beautiful unity. Let's pray the Lord, thank him for this, and do it all together in a unity of a church. Now, I have to give you some tips in case this is new to you. These weird little COVID capsules. <laughs> Be careful to peel the first little layer off, not the whole thing. So the bread is in the first layer, the juice is in the second layer. You have to peel that off correctly, otherwise it's really a bear. And people online, join us in this. Join us in this unity. Go get whatever you have available. If you have orange juice and a muffin, Whatever, crackers, it doesn't matter. If something special to you, go and grab it. But join us in this so that you are in unity in this with us as well. So this is from the Didache. As this broken bread was scattered upon the mountain and gathered together to become one, 
He's talking about the breaking of the bread for the 5,000. So let your church, Lord, be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. For yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. We thank you, Holy Father, for your holy name, which you have caused to dwell in our hearts and for the knowledge and the faith and the immortality which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant. And to you be the glory forever. You, O almighty sovereign, made all things for your namesake. You have food and drink to humanity for our enjoyment, that they may be given in thanks. But to, you, but to us, you have freely given spiritual food and drink and eternal life through your servant, Jesus Christ. Before all things, we give thanks to you, for you are almighty. You be the glory forever. Remember, O Lord, your church. Deliver her from all of evils and protect her. Perfect her in your love and gather her together from the four winds, sanctified for your kingdom, which you have prepared for her. For yours is the power and the glory forever. Let grace come. Let this world pass away. Hosanna to the God of David. For anyone who is holy, let them come. And who anyone who is not, let them repent. Come, O oh Lord. Amen.